God in flesh. What an amazing thought. If you brought a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to look together at John chapter 1 this morning. You read the Christmas story, if you read it from the various Gospels, you read how Paul describes it, even though it's not a, a, an account of the nativity, he still records some thoughts in regard to the coming of Christ and the advent. To me, one of the most amazing things is how John recorded it. It's not the nativity. It's just an explanation of what was happening. And John's words are they're eye-opening, but they require some thought. And you just have to spend the time. The story of the coming of Christ is an amazing account. After the angel Gabriel delivered to Mary the message that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Christ child. The angel then went and paid another visit to a young man named Joseph to whom Mary was engaged or betrothed to be married. In Joseph's dream, the angel appeared to him with instructions to proceed with his plans to wed Mary. And it was an amazing message because Joseph was already at a place where he was trying to wrestle with what to do and how to do it and how to do it best. Can, can you imagine the trauma that this guy went through? Can you imagine the struggle that he had trying to figure this all out, thinking that, that he had to, to divorce Mary, to put her aside, to put her away because she was pregnant, and then knowing what would probably happen, that it would cost her her life when it became evident that she was pregnant and not married. And then to receive this stunning news that God had chosen her to be the mother of Messiah. And that he was to go ahead and marry her, which, listen, you want to talk about shocking news. That means you're going to be responsible for parenting Messiah, guys. Most of us don't do real good with, you know, the average kids, let alone God in flesh. Joseph had to deal with all these realities. I figured out when I was working on my doctorate that I do my best thinking and my best writing when I'm walking around. If I stand still or sit in a chair, my brain just kind of shuts down. I've had people ask me, why do you move so much when you preach? It's because my thoughts move with me. In fact, staff used to laugh at me because they could hear me through the walls because I have a little office and I was just walking in circles, talking into a microphone when I was writing papers and working on a dissertation. It, it was the best way for me to get my thoughts to flow. And in my mind, I, I picture Joseph walking around inside his home or maybe outside his home. I, I picture him walking back and forth through the village of Nazareth, probably talking to himself and people saying, well, that crazy guy again. And, it, you know, he's trying to figure it out. And it, it, maybe it's kind of where we got that Christmas carol, I wonder as I wonder. Yeah, I, you know, he's trying to put it all together. I don't know if he ever got it figured out or not completely, but John did. Well, actually, John didn't. The Spirit of God did and just told John, here, write this down. 
And so in John chapter 1, he gives us this description of what the coming of Christ was about. And we're not going to read all of it, but, but I want us to read five verses out of the midst of it, verses 14 through 18. So if you've got your Bible open there to John chapter 1, verse 14, if you can and will, I want to invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of our Heavenly Father as we read together from His inspired Word. Follow along with me. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Would you pray with me? Father, I I pray that in these moments we have together, that you would speak to our hearts. I thank you for your word Sometimes confusing, but always right. Father, I pray that in these moments, as we examine a little bit of what's contained in these verses, that you would fill our hearts with wonder. Wonder at what you did. Wonder at the Christ child. And Father, help us to understand that it was all done to show your love for us. Father, I ask you to teach us. Speak to our hearts, for we're ready to listen. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. As John was concluding the prologue to his gospel, in these five verses, verses 14 through 18, man, this is, this is, how do you describe it? It's a great finale. It's, it's like going to listen to a great philharmonic orchestra. And you get to that last piece and all of a sudden the drums begin to roll and the cymbals crash and the fingers are flying across strings and, and the horns are blasting and it all comes to that, that moment of culmination. That's what these verses are in the prologue. It's moving. It, it, it's powerful. In these verses... I could park and preach for about a month and never leave them. I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to oversimplify. And this morning, I just want to share with you out of these verses three facts that are revealed about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And there are far more than that that I could draw out, but I figure some of y'all are going to want lunch at some point in the near future. And so I'm going to just boil it down to three and say, let's look at three facts that are revealed about the incarnation of Jesus, the mystery by which God became man. And if we're going to do that, then the first thing I want us to do is note the great condescension. Now, condescension is not a word that we use a lot when we talk about Jesus. Most of us are used to the word ascension. 
We know that he went on the Mount of Ascension. He spoke to his disciples and he ascended into heaven. I'm not talking about the ascension. I'm talking about the condescension. Because that's what is described here in verse 14. You got your Bible open? Look at verse 14, the beginning of it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God made an amazing choice to come and be with us. He didn't have to do that. God is high above us. God dwells in the heavens. God had spoken His creation to being. He had watched over His creation. He had interacted with His creation for centuries, from the very beginning. But now God chooses to condescend. The word condescend means to lower oneself to a level not normally occupied, either physically, mentally, or socially. It means that one voluntarily descends to the level of a person that one is dealing with. Listen, whenever we do that, when I say we, I'm talking about people. When we find ourselves dealing with people who are perhaps at a different social level or economic level or status level, then it's not always done with kindness, is it? There's a sense of arrogance too often, of haughtiness of snobbery. They're beneath us. And I know y'all are sitting there looking at me like, nobody's, made, nobody's shaking their head yes or no. Everybody's just looking at me like, don't go there, preacher. It's getting personal. But how do you feel when you roll down to the stop sign and that guy's standing there with his little cardboard sign? Do you look away or do you look at? Do you interact or do you avoid? Can I tell you something? God had every right to put his foot on the gas pedal and blow right by us. But he didn't do it. He stopped to interact with us. Because that's who God is. In the person of the Holy Spirit, God's glory is revealed to us. He speaks to us. He sent his Son to come and be among us. But there's another side to this word condescend I want you to get. It means to be graciously willing to do something that one regards as being beneath their dignity. Now, I know that probably some of you get tired of hearing about the things that my father taught me. But the older I get, the more I remember. And my dad taught me You treat the custodian with the same respect you treat the CEO. Everyone is of equal worth. Everyone is of equal value. You don't elevate someone above someone else because of, of what they do or because of their position. And not only that, but you need to understand something. There's not anything wrong with getting your hands dirty. There's not anything wrong with doing jobs that maybe aren't on your job description. And when I say that, listen, as a pastor, it's so easy pastoring in the city. It really is. And I say that, and people say, well, that can't be true. It is. Go pastor in a country church somewhere. Not only do you preach the word on Sunday, yeah, you still go to the hospitals. You still visit the shut-ins. You still go to the nursing homes. But you get to pull calves. You get to haul hay. 
You get to lock and unlock and scrub the floors of the church. You get to do everything imaginable, including you get to go out and help cut and stack the firewood when it gets to fall for everybody that burns wood. I mean, it goes on and on. The list is never ending. There's not anything that is above you, and there's not anything that is below you. That's what God did when he became flesh. When he put on human skin, it's this mysterious combination, a mixture, if you will, of divine grace and love. He came out of the palace. He came out of the throne room. He came from heaven and walked here with us in time and eternity. Throughout this first chapter, John describes Jesus by calling him the Word, Logos. The Word, the manifestation of God, the reality of who He is. He, in verse 3, he says He was the creative power at creation. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This creative power, this glorious power of God became a baby. Not a baby in a palace, not a baby in a, a fine hospital, a, a baby in a barn. Not in a Jenny Lynn crib, mind you, but in a feed box. Not surrounded by a sterile environment where everything is clean and scrubbed and, and, and antiseptic. No, in a barn. I don't have to tell you what's in a barn, do I? If I do, you need to go live a little. John says in verse 14, the word became flesh. Now, I want you to park on that word flesh for just a second. Because you see, John is living and writing in an age after Jesus is gone. He's living in a world that is filled with Greek sophisticates and Roman conquerors. And these people saw themselves as the intellects of the world. They were above the Jewish population. They were above the Syrian population. They were intellectually superior to everyone. And to them, talking about God in flesh was a repulsive concept. Because they understood flesh to be that which was corruptible, that which was temporary, that which would be destroyed. No God in their pantheon of gods would ever put on flesh. Now, he may appear as a person, but he would never actually put on flesh. And yet, we know that that is actually what the one true, real, living God did. He put on flesh. He entered human flesh, which means he became like us. He accepted the limitations of humanity. Think about it. The one who was the creator says, I'm going to limit myself to this puny fleshly body. He became vulnerable. All of the things that you and I feel, the weaknesses that accompany our flesh, he, he took them on himself. Hunger, thirst, physical weariness, sickness, pain. And, and what about what goes on inside the head, the, the emotional traumas that, that you have to deal with? Disappointment, sorrow, hurt, anger, loneliness, 
rejection, all of those things that we wrestle with, he felt it. There was one difference between him and us. He never knew the taint. He never knew that that shading that comes when we commit sin. While Jesus was here on earth, he never committed sin. And yet I want to tell you something. Before he left this earth, he experienced sin in a way that you and I will never experience sin. That's the reason why when he was in Gethsemane praying, it it sounds so panicked. It sounds like almost he's crying out in horror. It's why he felt so much anxiety that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It's why he pled with his heavenly father saying, Daddy, everything's possible with you. Please take this cup from me. He didn't. He knew he wasn't about to fall to temptation. He had made it through all of the testing. But he understood that in the next few hours, all of the sin of all of humanity, from the very first sin committed by Adam and Eve, everything that everyone in this room has ever done or will do, and all the rest of the world before us and after us till the very last sin that will be committed before the end of the age. All of those sins were in that cup he was talking about. Have you ever had an experience with something that's called, doesn't matter what the substance is, but it's called concentrate. You ever had an experience with something that was concentrated? Read your labels very carefully, folks. Because, see, if something says it's concentrated and you don't dilute it, you're fixing to have a really educational experience. It, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, if, if it's a food product, it's going to taste like nothing you ever imagined you would put into your mouth. If it's a soap product, you're getting ready to have suds that will just eat your house up will swallow it like the blob. I mean, if something says it's concentrated, what Jesus had in that cup that he was about to drink from was a concentration of all the sin of all the men and women and boys and girls that have ever lived or ever will live all rolled together into one cup, and it was horrifying. He didn't want to drink from that cup. And here's how it's described. He who knew no sin became sin. Now, think about that. It doesn't say he took. doesn't say he wore. doesn't say he accepted. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's why he put on flesh, as John says. And lived for a while among us. He pitched his tent here. He dwelled with us. I have to wonder. Why would God lower himself to be like one of us? 
And there's only one answer. His love. His love. But I told you I was going to tell you three things. That's one. He lowered himself because he loves us. The second thing that I want you to see, still in verse 14, so if you've got your Bible open, we're going to look, but I want you to see this amazing discovery. What's the discovery? Well, we said the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, but look at this. We have seen, this is the discovery moment, we've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory. We dealt with the word flesh. Now we're going to deal with the word glory. See, glory, when it's talking about Jesus, isn't the same thing that glory means to most of us. We start talking about glory. You, you achieve glory. You might get glory because you succeed as a student or because you're a great athlete. Or you might go into business and you achieve some level of glory because you are successful. You provide a business, a service that people want and are willing to pay for. And so you're successful. You do well. You're able to accumulate wealth. You are able to employ others and allow them to accumulate wealth. You're doing something that services other people and not just yourself. And you gain glory through that. When we say the word glory in that sense, we're talking about the praise of mankind. We give that type of glory to athletes, to astronauts, to people who do something. Jonas Salk, y'all familiar with the name of Jonas Salk? Jonas Salk is the man who discovered and gave us the polio vaccine. So a dreaded disease could be eradicated and lessen the suffering of mankind. Louis Pasteur. People recognize his name. They don't know they do, but they're used to drinking pasteurized milk. Louis Pasteur is the one who figured out how to refine milk products and make them safer for human consumption. And so he receives a certain amount of glory for that. I, I could go on and on. I mean, you could add people that you're aware of, that you know about, who've done things that you think have greatly impacted mankind. They receive glory. But that's not the same kind of glory that we're talking about when we read about Jesus. See, this is the glory of God. This is the same glory that we read about whenever we look back over in Genesis chapter 1. And it talks about this God who was there. Do you know what? Whenever we read over in Revelation and it talks about being in heaven and it says there is no sun and there is no moon. Why don't we need a sun and a moon? Because the glory of God lights up the heavens. John said, we've seen his glory. We've seen it. It's easy for John to say that. He walked with Jesus. He was there and saw the miracles performed. He, he was there and heard the teachings that were being done. He saw it firsthand, this glory of God. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, Every time that his teachings stopped people in their tracks, he saw the glory of God. Every time that Jesus spoke and, and it convicted someone of their sins and drew them closer to the Father. Every time that he showed them God's love, even in a moment when they were being unlovable, it revealed the glory of God. Every time that he, he revealed his desire to forgive people 
and to draw them into a relationship with God. It revealed His glory. It's not so easy for us now, is it, preacher? We don't get to hear Him. We don't get to see Him. We don't get to observe all of that. Is it even possible for us today to understand what it is to observe God's glory? Sure. God's glory doesn't abide in one body now like it did when Jesus was here on earth, but in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, this glory dwells within every believer. You see, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus said you're the light of the world. What that means is His glory ought to be shining out of you so that other people see it, hear it, sense it, feel it, experience it. It's not just present in some church experience. You go to church and, wow, man, we had a great worship experience today. Jesus really showed up. Jesus shows up every time that two or three or more gathered in His name. He's there in the midst of them. It's not just about what happens in worship time. Sometimes it's, it's in the workplace during the week. Maybe it's on Monday morning in, in, the, in your classroom. Maybe it's on an athletic field. God's glory is so often seen even in human suffering. And people say, well, that's nonsense. No, it's not. I've watched people, Christian people who are suffering, battling against cancer, battling against diseases that are slowly taking their life away from them. And I've listened to them testify about God's grace and God's love. And I realize the glory of God is being revealed through them. They understand the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Things don't always turn out the way we want them to. But none of that lessens the glory of God. Now, I want you to understand something. You say, if I could just see, if I could just see it. Look again at that verse 14. See what it says with me. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. He's talking about God. But then look at what he says. Who came from the Father, full of grace, in truth, Jesus is God in flesh. Here is that remarkable mystery of God the Father, God the Son existing simultaneously. Jesus knew what God was like because he was God. And he had come from God. And he was going to return to God. But now... There's one more thing I want you to see, okay? We've seen him lower himself because he loved us. We've seen that those who walked with him made this amazing discovery of who he is. And his glory proved it. But now John makes his crowning statement which provides for us a startling revelation. And I'm going to drop all the way down to verse 18. And you're going to say, wait a minute, what about 15, 16, 17? Do you want lunch or don't you? But I want you to see verse 18. Look at this with me. No one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side has made him known. You see, us folks, people, mankind, we want to see God. We think we do. 
Mankind saw God at the beginning. You go back to Genesis, God created the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve there. We're told that he would come down on a regular basis and he would visit them in the garden. He would walk with them. They would converse. They, they had a, a relationship. That all changed when sin came in and all of a sudden that was broken down. It, it didn't exist anymore. But the hunger, the longing for God never went away. In fact, you don't have to read very far till you meet this guy named Moses. And Moses kept asking God, will you show yourself to me? I, I want to see you. And God kept explaining to him, Moses, you can't look at me. No man can look upon me and live. And it wasn't just, I don't think, curiosity. It wasn't just Moses saying, I wonder what God looks like. Now that might be some of us. Moses bore the responsibility of leading God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness wanderings. And folks, I don't, have you ever really thought about that whole thing? I mean, I'm sorry, my brain's going down a rabbit hole here, but Deuteronomy 1-2 says it was 11 days journey. 40 years! The man would not ask for directions, obviously. I, I, don't, I don't know how she explain. 11-day journey turns into 40 years. He had this responsibility, and it was overwhelming. And I think Moses, and I know it's true, I've read the account, he sometimes grew exasperated because the people rebelled against his leadership. They rebelled against God's direction. They, they wanted to do things their way. They wanted to go back where they came from. They, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm sure that at times Moses felt lonely. He felt like he was a failure, that everything he was supposed to do, he was inadequate to do. And I, every leader feels that at some point in time, and at some level. And Moses believed, if I could just see God's glory, if God would just show himself to me, that would encourage me, that would strengthen me. I'd be ready to go on. I'll take this if I can just see him and know that it's real. Many of us feel like that. If I just catch a glimpse... I'll be ready to take on whatever. John says that in Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. He's no longer a faraway, mysterious being that's awesome and unapproachable because of his glory and his majesty. No, Jesus communicated the love and the tenderness of God through his teachings through his compassion, through his kindness towards sinful, hurting, desperate people like me. So how do you know that's true? The book says so. In John 7, 46, Jesus' enemies, not his friends, not his followers, his enemies said of him, no man ever spoke like this. No man ever spoke like this. Or, or over in Mark chapter 15, the Roman centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion detail that took Jesus out of the city, nailed him to the cross, and stood guard until he died, at the end of the day said, this man really was God's son. 
I'm not talking about his best friends. I'm not talking about John said it or Peter said it. I mean, sure, you would expect those who followed him and were his friends to say nice things about him. But his enemies said this is who he was. This is what he's about. How could he do that? Because no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only. Now, get this who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let me ask you a question. Where is Jesus today? According to Scripture, he is seated at the right hand of majesty. He is the one who is seated by the Father. He is the one who came from the Father and went back to the Father. Why on earth would you preach something like this this morning, preacher? It's simple. Christmas is coming. And I want a couple things to happen in our lives. Number one, I want you to reject. I want us to reject. I want myself to reject what Christmas has largely become in our culture. Because I want you to understand, our, our culture is not celebrating Christmas anymore. We're celebrating Santa Clausmas. Okay? I think it's awesome to give gifts and to gather with family and celebrate, but we need to remember who we're celebrating and why we're celebrating. Secondly, I want us to understand That this is more than just a story about a baby in a manger in a stable. This is about a great king who left his palace and came to walk dirty, dusty streets with common people so that, number one, he could show them how much he loved them. But number two, they could come to know him. And a relationship could be formed. That's that's what Christmas is about. And I wonder, you know, if I just took a mic and said, here, it's open mic time. What would you say about Jesus today? Have you observed his glory? Do you understand what he did? I mean, not not with the natural eye. None of us have done that. but, But with the eyes of our soul. Have you seen, have you understood, have you grasped what what he's like? See, you can know what God is like. From reading the word, you can know. From establishing a personal relationship with him and letting him change you from the inside out, you can know what God is like. Have you looked at the story long enough and hard enough? To be filled with wonder. Wonder at wonder at the fact the prophets knew hundreds of years before that he was coming. Wonder that the angels came and brought the message to Mary and to Joseph. Wonder at how Joseph dealt with that experience 
and how he handled that as a man. Learning that, that Mary was going to give birth not just to a child, but to God in flesh, Messiah. The one who would be the Word made flesh. With each passing week, I become more aware that I'm not as young as I used to be. And with each passing year, I keep waiting for Christmas to lose its spark for me. I've been preaching about Christmas now for 45 years. Every year. And can I tell you something? After 45 years, it still amazes me. I can't understand it. And when it comes and I start looking at the nativity stories and I start looking at John's prologue and I, I'm just, I'm amazed at what God did for me. And this morning I wonder, are you filled with the wonder of Christmas? Or are you just getting up every morning and saying, oh no, it's another day closer. Years ago, I heard someone say, Christmas is for kids. I'm a kid. I'm his kid. And I'm as filled with the wonder today and maybe even more so than I was when I was a child. And I don't ever want to get over it. And today, he wants to fill you with that wonder. And he will, if you'll let him. The question is, and this is really what it all comes down to, do you know my Jesus? He came so you could know him. He came so he could have a relationship with you and serve as a bridge to bring you from where you are in your sin to where you can be in the Father's kingdom. Do you know him? Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation. Simple. It's not about making the service longer. It's about giving everyone in this room an opportunity to think about what they've heard, what they've experienced, what they've felt. Whether it's been from the Word of God or whether it's been the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. What have you heard this morning? What do you need to do with that? Maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, I've heard this story about Jesus. I've heard, but I'm not understanding what you mean about this relationship thing. Let me make it simple. God's Word says that everyone in this room, everyone outside this room, every man is a sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it's not God's desire that any should perish. He doesn't want us to live and die in our sin. He wants to buy us back out of our sin. That's the reason he sent Jesus to be our redeemer, our purchaser. He is going to buy us back. How does he do that? He became sin. He took our sin on himself so that when he went to the cross, that perfect sinless man became sin. And he paid the price, the blood price the consequence for our every sin. 
And when we come to him in faith, believing that he is the Son of God, believing that what he did was done for us, we can receive from him the gift of salvation, eternal life, new life. God's word says that whenever we come to him, if, if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. All those old things are passed away and we become new. Today that can happen in your life. If you've never experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know I'd love to introduce you to him this morning. I'm going to invite you. When we stand and begin to sing, if you need that relationship, come take me by the hand. Say, Pastor, I want that relationship. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot, but we'd love to visit with you and share with you from the Word of God how you can become a child of God today. Maybe you're looking for a church home, a place where you can fellowship, a place where you can serve and be served, a place where you can come together with God's people and worship Him regularly. If God's led you to this place, this is where you need to be, I invite you, come. Be a part of this church. What is it that God's speaking to you? Maybe you just need to stop, slow down, and let all of the hustle and bustle go away and ask Him to fill you with the wonder of what Christmas is all about. Whatever it is you need to do, I pray you'll hear his voice. Be obedient. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. And I do thank you for the wonder of this time, this season. When our thoughts are drawn to what you did, when you left heaven and put on flesh and became one of us and dwelled among us so that we might see your glory. Father, the world has run away from the birth of Christ and tried to make Christmas about other things. I pray that you'd recapture our hearts, that we would understand that without Christ, there is no Christmas. Father, draw us to the wonder of it all. And now I ask, Father, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you, that today your Holy Spirit would just capture their hearts, draw them to yourself. Let this be a day when, when they know, maybe for the very first time, that they need a relationship with you, they'd be drawn to you. Father, whatever you desire to do in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, let it be done that you might be glorified. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this song. I think you know it. If you need to come, I invite you to come. We won't be here a long time, but we're going to wait for you. If God's speaking, come on right now while we sing.